Well, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We have a lengthy passage before us today. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 9 and read all the way to verse 16 of chapter 10. And what we're going to see is that today we're beginning a new section, a new book within the book of 1 Samuel. Maybe you've read a book before that's been divided by the author into different portions. Maybe you're reading along in a book and one chapter ends and you turn the page and you see the words book two. Well, something like that is happening here. First Samuel began with a genealogy of Samuel and we learned all about his, his family and his birth and his call to ministry and then the call to repentance he gives to the people after the whole fiasco with the ark. And then, last week, we reached a point where the people approach Samuel and demand a king. They want a king like all the other nations have. Well, today, we're beginning a new section of this book. And the genealogy that you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 9 should clue you in. And who is, the, or who is the focus of this new section? A very tall, very handsome young man by the name of Saul. He will be anointed king today. And we'll see the rest of 1 Samuel tell the story of his life and kingship. So not only are we starting a new section of 1 Samuel, we're beginning a new part of Israel's history. We're about to meet Israel's first king. This is a monumental shift in the nation. But how will it begin? With a search for lost donkeys. I mean, you think of big events in world history, and usually they have dramatic events preceding them. Such as the Boston Tea Party before the American Revolution. Or the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo before World War I. But how does the establishment of the monarchy in Israel begin? With some donkeys running off and a father telling his son, go get them. Well, what can we learn from a story about lost donkeys? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot. But first, let's pray before we read God's word together. Almighty God, we remember that your word is truth. And we ask that you would sanctify, in, sanctify us in the truth. Father, be with us during this time as your servant opens your word and stands before your people. Father, again, I've said this before. If there's anything unhelpful or wrong that I say, would it be forgotten? Would it go in one ear and out the other? But Father, if there is truth, if there is, or if there is anything that is helpful and edifying to your people, would you give them ears to hear? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 9, again, uh, we'll begin in verse 1 and read to 10.16. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Ahiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. 
Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of uh, Shalisha, but he did not find them. And they passed through the land of uh, Shalaim, but they were not there. And they, uh, then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city. And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to the servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a, sh- a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the servant, Well said, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just now come to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is uh, desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, I am not, uh, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them place at the head of those who'd been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave to you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed. 
that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then uh, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you. And give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel... God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the other prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he'd finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I told you that was a lengthy passage. Here's how I want to dissect it. First, We're going to look at the introduction of Saul. Second, we're going to look at the errand of Saul. And third, we're going to look at the anointing of Saul. So we're going to see the introduction, the errand, and the anointing of Saul. So before we get to this introduction, I've got something something I want to do. I've got a question for our kids especially. Something I want you to think about. What, what is it that makes you special? Is it the color of your hair? 
Is it how tall or short or strong or fast you are? What is it that makes God look at you and say, Wow, that boy, that girl is special. That's my question. I want you to listen and see if you can find the answer. Well, we have this introduction to Saul. We're told a little about his family. His dad is named Kish, and Kish is a wealthy man. But looking at the family tree, you can see it's not a particularly special family tree. There aren't many names. There aren't any names here we recognize apart from Benjamin, who was the youngest of Jacob's sons. And then we're told that Kish has a son named Saul. You know what the name Saul means? Asked for. Asked for. That's what it means. What had the people done in the previous chapter? They'd asked for a king. And so what does God do? He gives them a king whose name means asks, asked for. And what does the Bible tell us about Saul? He was tall and he was handsome. There was no one in Israel as tall or as handsome as Saul. Now, I went to high school with a guy named Travis Outlaw. He wasn't the most handsome guy at Starkville High, but he was definitely the tallest Travis, if I'm remembering correctly, went straight from Starkville High to the NBA. He made a lot of money playing basketball for the Portland Trailblazers. And I remember walking down the halls of Starkville High, halls filled with students everywhere. But you could look and see Travis pretty much from, oh, his chest up because he was so much taller than everyone else. Well, Saul was that way. He was taller than everyone else. He was more handsome than everyone else. In the eyes of the world, he is king material. Dale Ralph Davis said people would have voted Saul Mr. Israel. He was the beauty standard that all the other men aspired to. And all the women were looking for and a husband, tall, handsome, and wealthy. But you remember the people wanted a king like all the nations. And what do you think the other kings of those surrounding nations probably looked like? This probably wasn't universal, but most were probably tall, strong warriors who were nice to look at and came from wealthy families. That was Saul. And you and I know that our world is still like this. Most of the time, remember back, if you're still in school, you can think of it, or if you're no longer in school, remember back, who are the most popular kids at school? They're the guys who are tall, strong, athletic, handsome, and wealthy. And who are the popular girls at school? They're the girls who are pretty and wealthy. This is what our world values. Our world values what you look like. I've heard my friend Tony Childs say on multiple occasions... That life's hard if you aren't pretty. That's because we as sinners value people who are tall and strong and pretty. But here's a much more important question. What does God value in a person? What does God look at and care about? Is it your hair color? Or how strong or fast you are? Now, what does God care about? He cares about your heart. He cares about who you are on the inside. Because in just six chapters, God is going to reject, spoiler alert, 
He's going to reject this big, beautiful man as king. And he's going to send Samuel to anoint someone else, the next king. And God will tell Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what God cares about. A heart that is humble and kind. A heart that loves God and longs to serve Him. A heart that's like the Lord Jesus. And while we're on Him, do you know what the Bible says about Jesus' appearance? And this is always a a debate you'll see on social media. What what was Jesus' hair like? What was Jesus' skin color like? You know what the Bible tells us about Jesus' appearance? This is from Isaiah 53.2 in the Holman translation. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. How different King Jesus is described from King Saul. How different he is from what the world values in a king. And yet it is King Jesus who God the Father has raised above everyone else. It is King Jesus at whose name is above every name and before whom the whole world will bow down and say, You are Lord. And God wants your heart to be like His. But the most... That's... That's the most important thing about you. Not what does the world think about my appearance, but is my heart, is who I am on the inside becoming more and more like King Jesus? Well, if that's true, then why did God pick Saul to be king? Well, again, the people wanted a king like the rest of the world. And so God is going to give them one. And that concludes our introduction. Let's look at this errand. Mr. Kish comes in and says, Saul, the donkeys got out again. They're gone. Take one of the servants with you. Go and bring them back. And so Saul and one of the servants leave. They go on somewhere around a 20-mile journey, and they look, and they look, and they look, and do they find the donkeys? No. But where does this search take them? Where do they end up? In Samuel's hometown. And they've got two options. They could go back home so that Saul's dad isn't worried. That was Saul's idea. But then the servant says, Hey, there's a man of God who lives in this next town. He's highly honored. He speaks the truth. Why don't we go see him and maybe he can help us? That's what Saul decides to do. And they approach the city and they meet some young women who came out to get water from a well. And they ask them, hey, we're looking for the seer, the prophet who lives here. Can you point us in the right direction? And the girls say, he's right up there by the gate. Hurry and you'll catch him. And so Saul and the servant get to the gate. They see an old man. They say, hey, we're looking for the seer. Where might we find him? And the old man says, That'd be me. Now, there are lots of details involved in this trip that I'm not going to get into. Instead, I want you to grasp and take home this one simple fact about Saul's errand. And it's this. 
God is at work, even in the small, unexciting errands and routines and headaches of daily life. You think Saul was excited that his dad said, hey, the donkeys are going again. Take a servant, go get him. And they look and look and look for three days. Can't find the donkeys anywhere. God's at work. God could have brought Saul, the first king of Israel. He could have brought him on a cloud or a chariot of fire. But instead, he chose to use a boring, frustrating, fruitless search for lost donkeys to bring Saul to Samuel. And he was involved in every detail of this search. Again, Dale Ralph Davis calls this providence. He says, providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way the Lord has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over and under, around and through or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives. God rules this world and sustains his people in unguessable ways through the common stuff of everyday life, even if we aren't on board with his program. Do not think that God is indifferent or distant in your ordinary, boring, frustrating routine. I don't know what searching for donkeys might mean in your life. But know that nothing is meaningless and that God is at work. Now again, most of the time, you're going to have no idea what he's doing. You're going to have to remember he's doing something, but I have no idea what it is. Just Saul had no clue. Now maybe it's easier to see Years down the road, maybe you can look back to decades past and see you have a better idea of what God was doing. But in the events that happen today or tomorrow or next week, you can remember that God is working, but you're not going to have any idea what he's doing. He's probably not going to let you in on the secret like he did with Samuel. And so we're to trust that he's at work, and continue faithfully doing our errands, looking for lost donkeys, or whatever it is you have to do today. You know, at the risk of being grandiose, I'm not trying to... I'd remind you, this... I'd remind you that back in either 2010 or 2011, I can't remember, a young youth director who was trying to sort out his theology left his office at First Methodist on Fillmore Street and drove his car half a mile through downtown to an old church building on Proper Street and walked in uninvited and met a Presbyterian pastor. And now, out of the Lord's sheer kindness, that formerly young, formerly Methodist youth director that was searching for some help with his theology now has the honor of pastoring that same congregation some 13 years later. God is always at work. And as more time passes, maybe you'll have instances when you can look back and trace his hand and see what he was doing. Well, he let Samuel in on the secret, doesn't he? Samuel doesn't have to wait. And we see this in... Verses 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. That was the day before. And then after they talked to the young ladies, Samuel saw Saul. And the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. So again, no one has any idea what's going on in this story except Samuel. He's the only one. And God says, this is the guy. This is the guy you're going to make king. And look at what else God says. 
In verse 16, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines? We're still having trouble with the Philistines? Yep. We're reminded that the enemies of God always creep back. Whether it's a group of hostile people like the Philistines or whether it's heresy in the church or indwelling sin in a believer or Satan himself, the enemies will continue to creep back and harass God's people until that final glorious day when King Jesus returns. That's our one day, someday hope. That one day, all the enemies of Christ will depart forever, but that day is not yet. This is part of what Samuel is being called to. Additionally, when the Lord is letting Samuel in on the secret, there are two words that are repeated three times in verse 16. They are, my people. My people, my people, my people. The same people who'd rejected him. The same people who wanted a king like the nations. The same people who were hard-hearted and stubborn and rebellious. And yet the Lord names them my people. He's not disowning them. He's not letting them go. He calls them my people. And then later in chapter, two, in chapter 10 verse 2, Samuel tells Saul that he's anointed prince over the Lord's heritage. Maybe that's a word we aren't as familiar with. They are his special possession. They are his forever possession. A possession that he will not hand off to another. He says, Saul, you may be named prince over them, but they are my heritage. And that's good for us to remember that the Lord will never let his people go. Despite our sin, despite our fickleness, the church is the Lord's heritage forever. He will never hand her off to another. We can remember Paul's words to Timothy. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Or as we sang earlier, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. But there's one more thing before we get on to the anointing. There's this comment the Lord makes about this new king in verse 17. He it is who shall restrain my people. What does that mean? Well, some folks take it negatively, like this is a bad thing, so it's going to be a burden or a curse on the people. But I'm inclined to sign with Dr. Derek Thomas, who took this positively. This fallible man would be used to keep God's people from degenerating as much as they would have if left alone. Dr. Thomas commented, he said, quote, If we were left to our own devices, where would we be tonight? God gives us individuals who restrain us. He gives us wives and husbands. You know what extraordinary acts of folly some of us would have committed if it wasn't for our wives or for our husbands. They make us look better than we actually are. And to an extent, I think that is what God is saying here to Samuel. Saul, at least in this point in history, is going to make Israel look better than she actually is. Praise God for that. Praise God for the barriers he sets up. Because otherwise, where would we be? This is the secret that the Lord is letting Samuel in on that everyone else is clueless to. And remember how all this began with a search for lost donkeys. Such an unspecial, forgettable errand. But God is using it to provide for the needs of his dearly beloved people. All right, on to my final section of the text, the anointing of Saul. Samuel does this in secret, apart from Saul's servant, 
He finally lets Saul in on what's happening, and I can't imagine how surprised or confused Saul was. Um, Samuel pours oil on Saul's head, symbolizing God's Spirit being poured out on him to equip him for this office. And then Samuel names three signs. Three signs that will happen to assure him of the truth in Samuel's words. Now, these are not magic eight ball signs. They aren't just simple and generic. They are specific, very specific. There's going to be some guys. They'll have, uh, they'll have some goats. They won't offer you the goats. They'll have bread. They'll offer you two loaves of bread. They'll have a flask of wine and say, we're keeping the wine. We're keeping the wine and you can have two loaves of bread. It's very specific. And this is to assure Saul that this isn't just the ravings of a senile old man. This is something God has ordered. And of course, in, in this passage, there's lots of other things I could look at. But I just, with the time I have left, I want to major on the majors. Saul is anointed as the future king. But then the question that I have is, is Saul also converted? You know, I ask this because of what's written in verse 9. When he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And then in verse 10, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So we have God gave Saul another heart, and the Spirit of God also rushed upon him. So the question is, is Saul born again? Is this a micro-Pentecost event? And if it is, then what do we make of the rest of this story? Because it won't be long before we see the Lord reject Saul. It won't be long before we see the Lord remove his spirit from Saul and actually give him a bad spirit. Do we see here Saul losing his salvation? Does this undercut our Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? Well, from everyone I've read and consulted, I do not believe that here in chapter 10 we see the conversion of Saul. First, let's talk about the Spirit of God coming upon him. It is not uncommon in the Old Testament to see the Spirit of God coming upon a person. And such an outpouring is not, it does not deduce saving faith in the Lord. Rather, it is meant to empower a person to perform a particular task. Right? The Spirit of the Lord rushing on someone isn't always saving faith. It's enabling to do something God wants done. Think of Bezalel. Remember him? The Michelangelo, or the Da Vinci of the Old Testament. He's the one who carved and formed and fashioned the Ark of the Covenant and all those pieces that were kept in the tabernacle. We're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was enabled to build all of those things. Or think of Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he ripped up a lion. Another time, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he was enabled to kill many Philistines. And I think that's what's happening with Saul. The Spirit of God comes upon him for a time so that he will be enabled to lead God's people as their king. Now, how was it with Jesus? The Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove at his baptism. But it wasn't temporary. Because later Jesus would say, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's in John 8. And there I think we see the difference. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
Now, I don't want to be too hard on Saul here. Some of the commentators are pretty critical of him from the start, and they're nitpicking his actions in this passage. Um, But I want to give Saul a little grace, because this had to be an overwhelming and confusing moment in his life. But as we progress in this book, and as we see more of the kingship of Saul, he's going to be harder to defend. We're going to see some significant problems. And so thinking of the Lord's words in John 8, how might we have assurance that someone has been brought from death to life? They do the things that are pleasing to God. Elsewhere, the Lord will say, you will know a tree by its fruits. Here's a question we need to be clear on. Do these fruits come before God saves a sinner, or do these fruits come after God saves a sinner? No, it'd be after. A tree doesn't become an apple tree because it produced apples. A tree produces apples because it was first made into an apple tree. Now, this is important. Your good works are fruits of grace. They are fruits of the Spirit. God's sovereign grace brings a helpless sinner from death to life. That always comes first. But what always follows? Obedience to the God who saved you. We see this in Ezekiel 36. God is speaking to his people about the new covenant. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now again, In Ezekiel 36, we do not read God saying, Obey my rules and I'll give you a new heart. No, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. Don't miss, the Lord also helps us to walk in obedience to him. So what's the problem? The problem that I believe we see in the life of Saul and the problem that is all too common in the church today is claiming you have a new heart and saying that Jesus is Lord and then not bearing the fruits of grace. And Jesus gives us an illustration of this in Luke 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house, And could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Here's the problem. This is... This is not, this is a sanctification problem. We need to see it and recognize it. This is the problem with the kingship and life of Saul. It is saying, Lord, Lord, and then not pursuing obedience to him. Jesus says it's like a man who builds his house with no foundation. And when the storm came, the house collapsed and the ruin was great. The ruin will be great. 
in the life of King Saul. I think this is my last Del Ralph Davis quote. He says, quote, God's spirit gives power, but that power is to be exercised in obedience to the Lord's word. The spirit and the word must never be separated. What right have we to think we can enjoy the Lord's power and presence when we deny his lordship by trampling on his word? You know, as I land the plane, I want you to remember what the people asked the Lord for. What did they say? We want a king like all the other nations. And again, that's what they got. A wealthy, tall, handsome man. A man who had incredible spiritual experiences, but did not view obedience to the word of God as a priority. Beware worldly religion. Beware religion that celebrates and seeks after ecstatic religious experiences and dramatic spiritual mountaintops one after another after another, while at the same time dismissing daily faithfulness and obedience to the Word of God. Now maybe you're hearing me in the anxious, I've pushed the anxious button in your head and you're introspective and you're thinking, what if I'm like Saul? How do I know I've been truly converted? How can I rest knowing the Lord is with me and that he hasn't left me alone? Well, your assurance should not come from dramatic spiritual experiences. Rather, it comes when we humble ourselves and trust in God's word. And over time, our lives are marked more and more by a turning from sin and pursuing obedience to the Lord. You familiar with the means of grace? The means of grace are prayer and the sacraments and sitting under the word. Those are the means by which the Lord grows his people. So trust that he's at work, just like he was in this search for lost donkeys. And may the Lord give us the ears to hear his word. And would we plead? I guess I remember Psalm 25. If you want some application of of the pursuit of obedience and faithfulness. Go to Psalm 25. Make that your prayer. And ask the Lord to help you. He's at work. And I want to end with these words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked. According to the ways of this world, We were by nature children under wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one may boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, may we 
as I work through these three points in my head. May your people grow more and more convinced that their value and their identity is found in you and in the Lord Jesus and what he has freely done for us. It's not found in our status. It's not found in our finances. It's not found in the, the beauty standards that we may or may not meet for the day. It is found in you. So, Father, would we rest knowing that we are Christ's and Christ uh, is ours and our lives have been hidden in him and he has been accepted and raised up to the heights of heaven. That's who we are. We are his people. And God, would we also say to ourselves in those frustrating moments of daily life when we're out trying to find the lost donkeys again, whatever the the frustrating routine for us might be that day, Lord, would we remember that you are always at work in the small, common, everyday occurrences of life. Would we remember and would we trust you? And would you give us eyes to see, eyes that can look back at how you've worked in the past and how we couldn't see it at the time, but now looking back 10, 20, 30 years later, we're able to trace your hand and praise your name. And Father, finally, would you grow our trust in you? Not in some experience we've had, some uh, a, a spiritual experience or a prayer we prayed or a, a mountaintop retreat we went on. Lord, grow our trust in you. And Father, would you help us? As we read in Psalm 25, may we make that our prayer. Grow us. Teach us, guide us, make us more like your son. In those moments when we have doubt, in those moments when our assurance is wavering, would we be those who humbly come to you and repent of sin and plead that you would be near us and that you would teach us and you would make us more like your son? Father, I ask all these things for the good of your sheep. And I ask them in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.